What's going on, my people? This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield. I just wanted to jump on here before we get into this episode today. This is one I've been really excited to share with you guys. I already have an intro that's going to come on here in a bit, but I wanted to explain that I actually ended up breaking this episode into two parts because it was almost 90 minutes long and it's just easier, one, to have more content, but two, I don't think anybody wants to listen to me for 90 minutes straight. Nobody should have to do that. So uh, we wanted to give you a break as well. And so I found a good part kind of to, to segue and take a break there um, in the podcast. We're just going to kind of end it. Um, and then we'll pick up in part two uh, next week. So going forward for this whole year, the goal, the plan is for every Monday to be a solo episode, every Thursday to be an episode with me and a guest. So if you hate just listening to me, you'll know to just tune in on Thursdays. Um, but yeah, that's going to be our new plan going forward. So the next two Mondays will be the why am I Catholic after that, the next two Monday, the two Mondays following that in January will be why am I conservative in between there? We've got some great episodes with my man, Noble Gibbons about EQ being an EQ gangster. Um, and then we've got, uh, Noel Maring, uh, who's the author of awake, not woke, which is going to be an absolutely fire episode. You guys are going to love that. So try to time them up as well with the, the themes of my, um, personal stories and things like that as well. My, my solo episode. So, um, that's the plan going forward. Really excited to share these episodes with you guys. And lastly, I just want to tell you guys about Exodus 90. So if you've never done Exodus 90, um, oh, it's really for men. Uh, there is like Nineveh 90 and uh, what's the other one they created that um, Benedictine for women? I can't remember. You'll have to message Emily if you want to know about that. Uh, she was there when it was created. But January 17th starts Exodus 90 for this upcoming Lent. Now, I'm not doing it. As you know, I've been advertising the push-up challenge and my weekly challenges that I'll be doing. And I stole a lot of the stuff from Exodus 90 that are going to be implemented in our weekly challenges throughout the year. But because it's over my wedding and all that stuff, I'm not doing Exodus 90. It's madness. So, um, But I do want you to uh, encourage the men in your life, or if you are a man, and I want you to think about it for yourself. Discern it. You know, starts January 17th. You can go to exodus90.com. We're going to have like an affiliate link here in a bit. Um, so if you want to wait to sign up to support us, you can. Um, but I'd rather you do it than, than wait till we get our affiliate link and stuff set up. So Exodus 90, if you don't know, is all about prayer, asceticism, and fraternity. So it's about you really should try to lead a group. I led a group at Dynamic Catholic in the beginning of 2020, and it was awesome. 90-day spiritual exercise basically helps you to cut out a lot of stuff in your life. It's almost like an elimination diet, but for your life, right? So you really focus on praying each day, cutting out things like TV, excess time on your phone, computer, video games, like all this other stuff, drinking. And it really just kind of like eliminates all this other stuff. The one thing I really found from it was like, wow, I have so much time back. You have so much time in every day and you really are able to accomplish a lot. It's really what led to the start of Seeking Excellence because of how, you know, I started writing blogs and things like that during Exodus 90. I was just emailing them out myself. And that's what led to us having content and really creating a uh, seeking excellence. So I highly encourage you to check that out. Consider it. Go to exodus90.com and see how it works and everything and start to try to gather a group in your area. Um, best to do it in person, but you can also meet via Zoom and stuff like that. So want to share that, but I hope you enjoy part one of the top five reasons why I am a Catholic. You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. 
God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom, to go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ, to be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You were not made to make excuses. It's time for you to take extreme ownership for your life, for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. What is going on, my people? This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield. Very excited to share this with you today. This is a talk. Actually, I used this outline um, from two years ago when I first met Father Meyer. I went to speak at his parish, and he asked me to give a talk to his youth group of Catholicism versus Protestantism and comparing the two why one should be Catholic versus being Protestant or just non-denom uh, Christian or, you know, any number of things that are out there. Right. So, yeah, so this is a heavy, this is, I mean, it's not heavy topic. Heavy typically means like bad. This is a more lighthearted topic. No, it's actually pretty thick. I don't know what I'm saying. So it's, it's an important topic. Let's put it that way. It's very important. And so I'm going to go through some of my journey of how I became Catholic, but the most important thing I'm going to hit on today is my top five reasons of why somebody should be Catholic, why I am Catholic now. So I'm not going to just, it's not just like a, this isn't really going to be like a um, personal story of my journey to Catholicism as much as it's going to be the reasons why I'm choosing to be Catholic today, tomorrow, and until I'm dead, right? So that's what this is mainly going to be focused on. Uh, and there's going to be a lot in there. So I'm going to talk about a lot of different things today. Um, again, just first and foremost, you know, I always say this stuff at the end, but I'm trying to get a little bit better at repping different things. But first, I want to encourage you, if you have not gone and either subscribed to the podcast or left us a review, I highly encourage you to do that. I saw that we had last year 119 people listen to our podcast more than any other podcast, and we don't have 119 reviews. Now, as I continue to say things that piss people off, as this podcast probably will, I get like either one or five star reviews. That's pretty much all we get. So <laughs> if you don't think it matters, it does. If you want other people to hear this, if you do enjoy the podcast, um, know that as I continue to try to share the truth um, and to be bold in my faith and in, in the things that we believe, um, that there's a lot of negativity that kind of bogs us down. So if you can help counter, counter that, uh, it's greatly appreciated. So I get a kick out of going on seeing the one stars. Um, and again, like I, I don't do this to like try to grow it to 10 million people listening, whatever happens happens, but you know, we still want to try to fight against <laughs> the one-star reviews that people just give us because they don't agree with what we say. So, so there's that, um, but Catholic versus Protestant, you know, one of my favorite quotes about this, uh, this topic here is, I don't know who says it or where it came from. Um, let me see if I can, let me see if I can find it real quick. Boom. There it is. So. Uh, Sophia Institute <laughs> Press, the Sophia Press uh, shared it um, from Dr. David Anders. And it says, the Catholic Church saved my marriage it's from his book. 
the Catholic Church saved my marriage. And it says poorly formed Catholics become Protestants and well-formed Protestants become Catholics. And so that's somebody who converted to Catholicism. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, if, if you look at people like I was looking at this, actually like a New York Times article from way back. I don't know when it was from. It's in their archives, though. And it says, you know, Cardinal John Henry Newman, G.K. Chesterton, um, Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day have uh, major biographies and have become um, converts to the Catholic faith, many of whom were Protestants before that, mainstream Protestants or, or members of mainstream Protestant churches. And so uh, there's a lot to that. Now, my journey, if you remember, I'm going to give it really quickly. So I was baptized Lutheran. My dad was Baptist. I went to a Methodist preschool, kindergarten, started Catholic school at 13, became Catholic. I always say that was kind of more of an emotional thing. Like I was just really drawn to it. And, and we uh, weren't going to church as much by that time in my life. And so I was going to church mostly at school. So I was most exposed to Catholicism, going to Catholic schools. In college is where I feel like I had my real intellectual conversion. So my journey in college was really kind of, I took it, I took college as an opportunity in, in most areas of my life to kind of clean slate and just kind of start from scratch and be like, who do I want to become? Who is God calling me to be? How's he calling me to live? And I was really drawn to a lot of social justice things in that time, which is why I'm trying to remember what I have on the schedule. I don't know if it's next week or sometime soon, I'm releasing my podcast on why I'm conservative. And that whole journey, which is, I think it's going to be another really fun one to record. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I was really social justice driven and loved like praise and worship music and all that kind of stuff. And I still like some, I still like some of that stuff now, but uh, that drove me to really look into a lot of evangelical churches and some of those big, you know, mega churches. And we had one right down the road in Frederick, Maryland. I can never remember the name of it. Um, but I went there a decent bit when I was in college, and I looked up a lot of information to try to better understand what are the differences between Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, et cetera, right? And I think it's something that we don't really do a good job. I think we don't do a good job of forming Catholics in general, right? I think we fail in a lot of ways um, in church formation, but that's one that I think a lot of people don't really know about. And so it doesn't help when people get out and they get more drawn into one or the other, they start dating somebody who is Baptist or Methodist or non-denominational, right? Because if you're not formed in your Catholic faith and you don't know what's wrong with the other churches, you're going to be really easy to fall into those. And so as I go through these, these five reasons and the rest of the stuff that I'm going to share today, I think it's really important to understand a few things to lay some groundwork, right? So as you know, if you've listened to this podcast before today, I'm not somebody who likes to strive to be like politically correct. I'm not going to strive to sugarcoat things that I think are true. Obviously, I don't want to like, I'm not going to be like, all Protestants are going to hell. I'm not going to teach anything that's outside of the catechism or that is just absolutely false, right? So I think it's important to, to kind of lay that out, um, that I'm not going to like try to be super nice. I think it's one of the problems that we have today. I think a lot of Protestants don't become Catholics because we in the church have this kind of approach that whatever, like we all, it's all the same thing, right? We all worship the same, worship the same God and that it's all basically the same. And I think that that's really sad that a lot of people miss out on so much goodness that's offered by the church, namely the sacraments um, and the fullness of the faith, because we're like so nice and afraid to like call things what they are. Back in the day when people like denied the Immaculate Conception of Mary, we called them heretics. 
right? Like, <laughs> and we were like pretty harsh on heretics back in the day. Um, back in the day when people denied the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, we called them heretics, right? When people said you don't need to go to confession, like that that's wrong. That was heresy. The only thing that's changed with that is over is time. And we got a lot nicer. Now I'm not out here trying to tell everybody that you're a heretic. What I think is true is this next quote that I want to share that I'm pretty sure comes from Fulton Sheen. Um, that basically essentially goes like this. There's only 10 people in the world who disagree with the Catholic church. The rest of them disagree with what they, be- they think the Catholic church teaches. And man, I'll tell you what, like I've, I've dated Protestants in the past, had a lot of Protestant friends, especially when I was in the army, I was very involved with a lot of Protestant stuff. Um, and if that's not the truth, man, I tell you what, like when I got to asking people, especially the non-denoms about Catholicism, like it was amazing to me how little they knew. And now this is one of the reasons why I'm so mind blown by that is because like, it was really crazy to me to see Protestants in the army who I knew were patriots and conservatives who knew nothing about church history or the Catholic church. And so I'm like, if you, this always like blew my mind. There's going to be several things I'm going to share here that just like blow my mind about how people are Protestants. Not everything. I don't think that every Protestant is like stubborn or stupid or like ignorant. I'm not saying that, but I think that it's amazing to me how satisfied they can be with like very little information and just kind of take things. There's a lot of assumptions that Protestantism is built on, right? Instead of like history and facts and and scripture even. And so uh, one of the things like this analogy that I kind of made in my head back then that I shared with one of my friends uh, when we were talking about Protestantism, because I kind of hit this point like my last year in the army, where I was getting more bold in my faith and more bold in my political views and all this stuff. And I, I, stopped, I started speaking up when people would say, when I'd be in conversations with people and they'd be like, yeah, it's basically all the same, right? Like we all worship the same Jesus. I started being like, no, it's not the same. Like what, what you do on Sunday, what I do on Sunday, it's not the same. And if you're a Catholic, like obviously you want to be somewhat well-formed to be able to read uh, up and have like answers to some of the basic things before you start saying that, right? Because you don't want to say that and then not be able to explain it. But you do, like, I think, have an obligation to say that most of the time, right? There can be times, right, if you're at, like, your, your grandchild's uh, baptism or, like, some family event where it's just, like, not the moment. You know what I mean? You're talking to your in-laws or something. It's, like, you don't have to go, like, full, you know, guns blazing every time. But eventually, like, you should share with somebody that that's not true, right? Like, if you believe in the true presence of the Eucharist, if you believe in sacraments and you go to Mass because you believe in that, then when somebody goes to a mega church on Sunday and, and you go to mass and they say it's the same thing, like you can't nod your head with that, right? Like you can't just be like, yeah, you're right. It is the same. It's not the same. Um, and so one of the things that got me all the time with these people, I would say, you know, my friends and stuff, and I'd be like, no, it's not the same. And what do you know about Catholicism? And like genuinely ask, right? Like not with like harsh tones, but just be like, what do you know about the Catholic church? Um, and I'd be like, man, isn't it crazy how, like we, we watch, I was just watching a video last night on YouTube about like clowning people who don't know American history, right? It, like the Jay Leno videos, right? Like he's interviewing people on the streets. I think it's so funny and depressing. It's both funny and depressing. It's terrible how dumb people are, but he's like, how many, how many stars are on the flag? And people are like, uh, 32, like this one woman was literally like 32. And he pointed to a flag on like, that was waving that was outside. And she was like, oh, it's moving too fast. I can't count them. And he's like, are you serious right now? 
he asked people to name how many Avengers they could name, how, as many as they could, and then did the same with presidents and showed like six people who named more Avengers than they could U.S. presidents. And I'm like, I know these friends of mine. I'm like, that frustrates you, right? Like it frustrates you that people don't know American history. That's why we see so much in, in world history, right? That's why we see the rise of socialism over and over again, right? In every generation. And uh, I would ask him, I'd be like, man, the idea of reading the gospels and then jumping ahead, right? So like reading the gospels, even the letters, right? Let's say, you know, reading the gospels and letters. So let's, let's, let's give it some buffer room and say, you, you know, Christian, the Christian church from, uh, you know, Jesus's birth up until the, the end of the first century, right? 100 AD. And that's generous, right? And we'll give you some buffer room here with the, the letters and all this stuff, Acts of the Apostles. Now let's go and say you jump ahead then until 2004. Let me see here. When was Elevation Church founded? Because we had a lot of Elevation people in uh, North Carolina, right? Because it's in Charlotte. So I was in Fayetteville. And we had a ton of Elevation people. 2006. So let's say you jumped ahead 1900 years, right? Year 100 AD. You jump ahead 1,906 years. Uh, for, for those out there not good at math, that's 1,906 years of church history. And you pick up with Stephen Furtick, who launched the church in 2006. And the only things you care about and think that your theology should be founded on is scripture, right? Events and, and things that were written in the first, first century. And then jump all the way ahead and you read like, John Eldridge and books by Stephen Furtick and books by Michael Todd and all these pastors and stuff like from, from this century. Right. Is it like, is it that not concerning? That's the same. I would tell them as somebody who knew about the revolutionary war, right. The Boston tea party and all that stuff. And then jumped ahead to like the Obama administration. It'd be more like jumping ahead to the Trump administration. And they knew everything from like 2016 till now. And they knew about the Revolutionary War. You're missing a good chunk of American history there, right? And that's what a lot of like high schoolers kind of do, right? Like, I mean, you kind of, we have all these young people who are like into socialism that were conditioned to hate Trump. And we see so many people that it's like, do you, like when people are like, America's always been terrible. And it's like, do you not remember like World War I and World War II where we literally like saved the world? And now this isn't a, a pro-America podcast. I mean, the podcast in general is pro-America, but um, that's not what this episode's about, but do you understand the difference there? Like, or the, the analogy there is how do you, how do you study something and care about something so much when it comes to your country? And you say that from the beginning, you know, I, you need to know, have a basic knowledge of American history. We you know, say that for people who want to become citizens, people, you hear conservatives, religious conservatives say to vote, you should be able to have to pass a, you know, American history test and all these different things. And it's like, well, what about your faith, dude? You don't need to know anything about, about the faith. Like church, church history just doesn't matter to you. So let me dive into these. This, this leads me to my, uh, perfectly, um, into my, my first reason why I want to become Catholic. But before that, I have my five reasons, my list of five. Before I dive deeper into church history, dude, the number, I, this, is, this is something that's so important. I'm so glad I just checked my list here. I, the number one reason why I'm Catholic is because I believe that God wants me to be. Let me say that again. The number one reason why I am Catholic is because I believe that God wants me to be. I can't tell you how many Catholics who have fallen away to different churches that I've known 
when you ask them, why did you start going to Elevation or to all these other churches? It's because I just felt really good because the music was great. Because I love I love Pastor Stephen Furtick. He's funny. He makes things relatable. Uh, it gets me. I feel like I get something from it, right? Everything is is I. It's very first person oriented. And that's the problem. The problem is that what a lot of times when people fall away from the church, it's always other focus. When you ask somebody like myself, Emily, like somebody who knows the faith, and you ask them, why are you Catholic? Why do you remain Catholic? There's reasons. And I'm about to give you my top five reasons. Um, what's his name? Peter Kreef, Dr. Peter Kreef, one of my favorite books. He wrote a book called 40 Reasons Why I'm a Catholic. And it's like 110 pages. It's a great read, very quick. Each, each reason is like three pages. It's awesome. But the number one reason I'm Catholic is because I think God wants me to be. And I think you have to ask yourself, oh, this leads me to another story. There's so many stories. This is such a good topic, man. I love talking about this. Um, you have to ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? Why am I what I am? And it's so funny because so many Protestants accuse Catholics, like especially your, your cradle Catholics, people who are you know, baptized as a baby and raised in the faith and to some degree, say you're only Catholic because your parents were Catholic. And it's like, dude, why are you Protestant? Do you have, like, you don't even know what you're protest protesting against. You don't even know what you object. And if you do know what you object, which I would say maybe 10 to 20% of them do, it's, it's misinformed. It's very misinformed. And so let me tell you the story. This is one of my favorite tales too. I was on, this is like movie, movie stuff, right? Movie stuff. My life's a movie, bro. No, it's really not. It's uh, pretty average, but Oh, it's amazing life. I have an amazing life, but my life isn't a movie. I don't know why I get on these little tangents. But anyway, so there I was. No shit, there I was on a, a rooftop in Afghanistan, right? And we were doing some stuff and special forces guys were coming back to like reload and all these things, right? And their chaplain happened to be there with us and it was a Sunday. And so obviously like, I'm out in the field for like two to three weeks. And so there's no mass. But I got my rosary out there, of course, and I had we had like a Bluetooth speaker. So I was actually able to listen to a previously downloaded Father Mike Schmidt's podcast. So I listened to like his homily and prayed the rosary. And he came up on the rooftop while I was doing radio duty on Radio Guard and uh, on radio duty. I don't know where I got that from, but I was on Radio Guard and I, he comes up and the chaplain, he's like a major. and He's talking with me. And he tell, it was like, I didn't even bring anything up. He just like asked me what I was listening to and all this stuff. And I told him, I'm like, yeah, I'm Catholic. I'm doing this, right, whatever. And he's like, oh, wow. He's like, you know, I was actually raised Catholic, but I think I want to say he was Episcopalian at this point. Um, and I'm like, oh, cool. And he's like, yeah, I just really struggled, you know, with some like the teachings about Mary. And I was like, gotcha. And I, I mean, I wasn't at a point, I don't think where I could have really debated this guy on uh, Mary and theology at that point, but I'm like, Yeah okay. You know, like I wasn't even asking questions. He's just like opening up to me. And he's like, he's like, but I don't know, man, I might become Catholic again someday. He's like, there's this one thing that really gets me that, that always got me. He said, I had a history teacher. The guy wasn't even Catholic, but we were learning about like religions and history. And he said that every Protestant needs to have a good reason as to why they're not Catholic. Because this history teacher, like acknowledged the fact, this leads me back into church history. The number one reason why I'm Catholic not the number one reason, but reason number one in my list. He said, every good, every Protestant needs to have a good reason why they're not Catholic, because for 1,500 years, everybody was Catholic. So if you're not going to be the thing that was the thing for 75% of what your religion, your religion's existence, 
you should have a reason as to why you're not. And I'm telling you, man, if you ask most of them, why are you not Catholic? There is not a good reason out there for it. If there's not an understanding of what you're rejecting. And I just, I, I feel like in this age of information, people need to take this more seriously and be willing to like actually learn about these things and have reasons why they're rejecting them. Because I'm telling like, this was heresy back in the day, man. And heresy is a big deal. Heresy is a very big deal. The only thing worse than heresy is apostatizing. And that's when you know and, and believe the Catholic faith and reject it anyways, which is what you see with priests and bishops in Germany, priests and bishops here in the U.S. Um, that know the faith, have been trained in it, and still reject it for all types of different reasons, which we're not going to get into today. But again, reason number one, point number one, I'm going to talk about is church history. So I talked about my analogy already with U.S. history, the importance of knowing history. I think all of us that are in the church typically would agree that like knowing history is important, generally speaking. Now, uh, one thing that I love about history, uh, another thing that I love, another great moment I had was, have you ever been in a Lifeway, the Christian, they're like Christian bookstores, right? It's like a Christian uh, Barnes and Noble, but much smaller. And I, I pulled up this, the same thing that I found one time in a Lifeway and Lifeway, they have some Catholic stuff, but they're definitely like, it's definitely Protestant, right? Like it's definitely dominated, heavy Protestant. You're not going to find like images of Mary and stuff in there, but you'll find like some Catholic books and Bibles. So one time I was looking at this chart, right? And they had this like big chart. And I don't know if it was for like religious studies or whatever. Like, I don't know who the hell would buy this thing, but other than Catholics, <laughs> I almost bought one. I wish I did sometimes. And it was this chart and it was actually really cool. It had like, a breakdown of what different churches believe and different denominations, right? So on the left hand, the first column, uh, you can imagine this, it was like Catholics, Lutherans, Methodist, Baptists, right? Anglican, uh, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, non-denominational, evangelical. Um, what's the, oh, Pentecostal. I was like, what's the snake people? Um, the snake people is not a nice way to describe them. I apologize. The, uh, Sometimes they play with the snakes, though, but they're not snake people. That's not kind. But it had all the different denominations, and it would have, like, different columns, had different topics, right? And it was like, what do they believe about salvation? What do they believe about communion? What do they believe about forgiveness of sins or scripture? Or all these different things, right? And there were two things that really separated the Catholic Church from the rest of them. The first one was that the Catholic Church believes in scripture and tradition. Um, it's just not entirely based on scripture. And so I'm going to talk about that in a bit. But the other one that I thought was really wild that Protestants would be willing to put on their, on their poster was it talked about who created the, that denomination um, and what year they created it. And so I have, a, I have a list very similar now up and you can see on here, you know, the Protestant Reformation was in 1517, Lutheranism slash Protestantism on this list that I'm looking at. And I'll put my links in the, in the description if you guys want, um, was created in 1517, right? In Germany, it even says where. Uh, the Mennonites created in 1525 in Switzerland. Uh, Anglican created in 1534, King Henry VIII in England. Calvinism, John Calvin, 1536 in Switzerland. Which I mean, like, isn't it just not great that like Calvinism and Lutheranism are named after the dudes? Like, I, I that was one thing I never really like understood. It's like this is literally named after like a human being. 
that founded this. And it's not Jesus, right? Like Christian has Christ in it because of Christ and it was founded by Christ, right? So like Christian church, the Lutheran church has Martin Luther founded in it, be- or in it because it was founded by Martin Luther. That to me is a problem, right? Methodist, John Wesley, 1739, 1739. That means we're coming up on their 300th anniversary. That's pretty fresh. Not nearly as fresh as 2006 for, or for <laughs> Elevation, but hot dog. Elevation just celebrated 15 years this year. Congrats, guys. Um, Latter-day Saint, Joseph Smith, um, also known as Mormons, 1830, New York, USA, America. Jehovah's Witnesses, 1870, Pennsylvania, great state of Pennsylvania. Pentecostalism, 1900s, Charles Parham, California, USA. Like, okay, that's great. Oh, we missed one. Roman Catholic Church founder, Jesus, comma, Peter, circa 30, location, Judea. Okay. Okay. Like that, that in and of itself, let's just start there. Let's just, let's just kick it off with that one. And I I found this dude, I found this on this poster and I'm like, bro, this is literally like Protestants buy this. Like, how do you buy, like, these are some of the things guys I'm telling you, like, I I just look at, I'm like, how, like talk, how though, like how though, how, how do you do it? How do you look at that dog, Roman Catholic, Jesus, Peter, circa 30, Judea. And then you went, uh, let me see, 1,487 years until the next one. And it was a Martin Luther in Germany. So there's that. And so the church history, you can also go back and you can see, uh, you can also see the uh, apostolic succession. So if you don't know apostolic succession, Apostolic succession means that Pope Francis descends from St. Peter, right? So St. Peter was the first Pope. We look at that in scripture when Jesus says, uh, changes his name from Simon. He says, I now call you Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build uh, my church, right? And so we believe from that through scripture and tradition um, that St. Peter was the first Pope. And and that, that website, by the way, that I was on was not... It's religioustolerance.org, but you can find this list on many different things and places. And this is not, I mean, I don't even know, this isn't even like a Christian website, right? This is just founders of Christian faith groups. You can find this everywhere. There's nobody that, that, that'll tell you that, that Lutheranism was founded by Jesus. And I mean, it doesn't, this doesn't make sense, right? Like if you know anything about history at all, you know that the Protestant Reformation was a thing and that's what led to all of Protestantism. Now, Pope Francis was uh, became Pope March 13th, 2013. Before him, we had Benedict the 16th. Now, I'm not going to gospel of Matthew you and go through this whole list because it's actually even longer than uh, the genealogy of Jesus, um, names wise. But you can literally scroll on this list again. This is even a Catholic website, um, and you can see Peter after Peter was Linus, after Linus was Anacletus, after that was Clement. After that was Everistus. And it literally scrolls all the way down. Like there's not a gap. Right? Boniface. Uh, John the first. Boniface two. Boniface was popping back in the day. Boniface four. John the fourth coming up. Like you can see who was Pope in year 752. Stephen the second. 
right? Who became Pope in 18 or 817? Like you can literally look on the list and see it, right? So you can go through and were all these popes great and wonderful men and all of them saints? Absolutely not, right? We had some horrible saints or how not horrible saints, horrible popes throughout the years. Um, but that's also one of my other points. Not only the history of the church and the good stuff, but what about the bad history? One of my favorite quotes, I think I first read this in Letters to a Suffering Church by Bishop Barron. I think he has this quote in there. I should have looked it up so I could have it perfect. But I tried to find it and I couldn't before I started this. But it's a quote by some like Catholic thinker. And he, he says, he's being asked about like all the evil and like negativity in the church over the years. And he's like, if that doesn't guarantee uh, that we're the church that Jesus talked about when he said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Um, when Jesus in scripture talks about having one church, when he prays to the father that we'll be unified, that we'll be one. Um, when in, in the, in the creeds, when we say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the creed that's also said in many Protestant churches. Um, we believe that because even with all the horrific violence, infidelity, abuse, and terrible things that happened in the church, it's still around. Dude, you know how many like countries have come and gone, empires have come and gone in the last 2,000 years? Like religions that have ebbed and flowed, religions that have existed throughout time that have ebbed and flowed and kind of died off and things like that. Now imagine if they had this horrific track record like the Catholic Church does. Right now, I'm not going to straight up dog the church. And I know a lot of people like to focus only on the negativity. The church has also fed more people, clothed more people, taken care of more sick people, educated more people than any other organization in world history. Right. So it's been a global force for good, um, much like the U.S. Navy. Uh, if you remember that commercial, it's from a commercial if you didn't get that. But it, we've done that. We've done an incredible amount of good. Right. The saints and things like that throughout the years and just regular church, you know, the unnamed saints in heaven as well. But we've, had a, we've also had a lot of evil and, and, and scandal and corruption throughout the church history. And it's like a voluntary organization. Like, how does it remain? You mean to tell me that if Elevation Church, like Elevation Church, if they had the, the issues that we had, you think they will be around in 2,000 years? That's why I think these non-denom churches have to have this kind of like like the, the church is so fluid to them. It can just kind of become whatever throughout time or whatever. It's like, it doesn't really have to like be anything specific because it kind of just ebbs and flows because you know, that elevation after Stephen Furtick is even going to be around. Elevation is going to live for one lifetime. There's been so many popes. You can scroll down here throughout the 2000 years. So many of them. We still have a Pope today and sure. He's a little nutty every now and then, but this isn't a podcast about Pope Francis. We're here to talk about apostolic succession, the bad history of the church and the saints. Matthew Kelly in his books a lot of times talks about that, says that we're, we fed more people, clothed more people, taking care of more sick people, educated more people, um, baptized more people than any church in, in any, any, not any church, any group of any organization, any group of people in the history of the world, which is pretty wild. So that's pretty awesome. Um, if you want to read some dope uh, U.S. history, learn about healthcare uh, and um, education system in the United States and how much the Catholics influenced that. You want to learn about feminism and the honoring of women. There's no religion in the world that honors a woman the way the Catholic Church honors Mary. 
and how much that influenced the world and actually led to more rights and things like that for women. Um, it made more sense to Catholics than anybody else because Catholics were the ones that prayed the rosary, were the ones that honor Mary the way that we ought to. When she says in scripture, that's quoted in scripture in Luke's gospel. From this, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. When she says that in the Magnificat, if you watch the chosen Christmas special, you saw this. Like we actually do that. All generations will call me blessed. It's in scripture. And people and, and other churches just treat her normal. The mother of Jesus, Mary, the Virgin, like a kid, you know what I mean? Give her a little bit, of, a little bit of respect, but they won't actually treat her the way that she ought to be treated. You know, the, the greeting of Elizabeth, the mother of my Lord has come to me. Who am I? The mother of my Lord has come to me. And then if we say she's the mother of the Lord, they're like, that's not true. And it's like, dog, it's in scripture. That's all you believe in is scripture. You still deny that. It doesn't make a ton of sense. Boom. Speaking of scripture, I'm not even looking at my list sometimes in these transitions. I'm telling you people, I'm on it today. The Lord is the Lord is good. That is for sure. All right. So now we're going to talk about scripture. Point number two, scripture, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm using some Catholic answers here and a few other things I like to talk about. So the, here's some of the issues with scripture, right? So you know the classic like uh, sola scriptura. And scripture versus tradition is kind of my third point. So I might kind of mix these two together here. Sola Scriptura basically is, is Latin for only scripture. And it's basically what uh, Martin Luther kind of started to promote when he uh, broke off from the Catholic church, right? Now, mind you, this is something I think is really interesting about Martin Luther is he maintained that Mary was immaculately conceived. So the immaculate conception of Mary, he believed in, and he continued to pray the rosary for the rest of his life. Uh, so I think that's interesting, but he started this idea of sola scriptura, which is only scripture. So if you know, Catholic church, we believe in scripture and tradition, uh, pretty much all Protestants only believe in scripture. Here's the problem with that. Uh, there's several, the most basic one, this is one that gets me most worked up and is the most crazy to me is that. Nowhere in scripture does it say that you should only believe in scripture. So it's what you call a self-defeating claim, right? It's kind of like uh, we talk about the claim for relativism, right? When people are relativists, it means that you don't believe that there's any universal truth. Relativism is goes along well with Protestantism because it's kind of this like you define your own reality, define your own truth. You have some some Protestants who are very, very strong about like, What's in the Bible? What's in scripture, right? Um, and we'll, we'll kind of hold to like universal truth and use the Bible as their standard bearer for that, um, which is a move in the right direction. Uh, but relativism, I think, has come a lot out of the Protestant Reformation of kind of like, I can decide and interpret things for my own uh, and I can have my truth. I can have my interpretation. You can have yours and we can live together that way, right? It's liberalism. Uh, liberalism comes out of that idea to a certain extent. And so the problem with Sola Scriptura, just like the problem with relativism, the problem with relativism is to say there is no universal truth would in fact itself be a universal truth. Does that make sense? So if there's no truth, that's true for everybody, which makes it universal, which means that the, that itself is a universal truth, which means there must be some universal truth. And you can't say that there's no universal truth without 
the statement in and of itself being that there is a universal truth, that there is no universal truth for anyone. So that's the problem with that. The same thing with Sola Scriptura. So the claim is all you need is scripture. Like everything is Bible. All you need is scripture, no tradition. The, pro- the first problem with, with that is that the active form of it um, is that nowhere in scripture does it say, or I guess it's the passive problem is that nowhere in scripture does it say that all you need is scripture, that everything should be based on scripture. Uh, the active problem with that is on the contrary, you know, uh, Jesus, St. Paul, um, other letter writers, like they talk about, you know, St. Paul specifically says, uh, I mean, 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 2, where he says, these things that you've seen me do, teach them to others who you can trust to show them to the world, you know, to continue to evangelize. Uh, St. James writes about this. St. John talks about um, the, the continue on the traditions, continue the things that you saw me do, continue the things that you we've taught you, right? Um, there's a lot of that in scripture. Uh, Jesus, when he resurrected from the dead, like suck around for a while. Like he didn't just resurrect and ascend into heaven, right? Like the resurrection and the ascension um, are on two different days, like two very different days, right? Uh, Pentecost is not right after Easter, if you haven't noticed. So in that time period, Jesus continued to teach the disciples, right? There's so many things that he taught them, the apostles and the disciples, so many things that St. Paul taught and showed people that isn't in scripture. And so you're just left with this question of like, what, what are all these gaps, like, what do you do with all of these gaps, right? Like, how do you, how do you make up for this um, in, in not being able to understand? And this is where, so I'm kind of jumping ahead to scripture versus tradition, which is my third point. Um, but Paul's letters talk about this, right? right so I looked up uh, some stuff on the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And so uh, this, this is one of, of many things that I think a lot of Protestants don't fully understand about Catholicism. Uh, my future sister-in-law, Mary, just got the Green Catechism. Uh, I forget what the actual title of it is. I'll have to look it up or ask her. But the, the good thing about the Green Catechism versus the little white ones is that the green one actually uh, has resources and sources back to everything that's in the catechism to Scripture, which is which is one of the craziest things. Like Sometimes I think Protestants look excuse me, at Catholics and just think we're just absolutely crazy. This is why so many Protestants, when they start reading the early church fathers, when you start getting to like, just the same way we as conservatives will be like, we just want the freedoms that were guaranteed to us in the Constitution, right? Early United States, the founding fathers, what they envisioned for the country, that's what we want, is freedom, individual liberty. How do we not take that same approach and say, I want to worship and do things like the early Christians did? Instead, if you go into a megachurch in a high school gym, with their rock band and their music and the lights and the funny pastor and the rip jeans. That's nothing like what the early Christians did. And you're not teaching anything that they taught. And so it doesn't make a ton of sense. So if you go back and you read and you study the church fathers, the early people of the church, this is the stuff that you get. But even if you see here, the St. Paul center for biblical theology, right? This Catholic um, place talks about uh, tradition. And so here it is in, Uh, The letter to the Thessalonians, St. Paul says, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, right? You can go down even further, says, uh, this is a quote from their article that they have, and I'll I'll try to link this as well, says the more specific meaning of tradition, capital T tradition, however, consists of the teaching that God himself, that is Jesus, 
delivered to the apostles, but were not completely recorded in inspired scripture. The fullness of the Christian faith cannot be contained in a book, even an inspired one. The ecclesial or church offices of Pope, Bishop, and priests, the rubrics and celebration of the liturgy, and the seven church sacraments are essential elements of the faith. These cannot be confined to a book, even though they were are part of the church's life in every age. These go back so far, guys. This is what I don't understand. Like this stuff is the early church. I remember reading a book. It's called A Simple Explanation of the Mass, right? And, and Dynamic Catholic sells it if you want to check it out. It's written by a priest. He goes back and he talks about not only the ways like from early church letters, I'm talking about first, second, third century letters that Christians wrote to each other when they talked about how they worshiped and how, how their worship ceremonies went. It is the mass that we celebrate now, the words that they said, the actions that they did. And not only that, but it mimics so much from the Old Testament and the ways that the Jews actually sacrificed to God. And so Jesus being the Lamb of God, like, who takes away the sins of the world, like, we re-sacrifice him to the Father on the altar at Catholic churches at every Mass, and then we consume him as he instructed us to do in Scripture, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. The other thing that I don't understand about this, so obviously the church fathers, early Christians, this is what they did, which is so important. The second one is, dog, who do you think came up with the Bible? Who do you think came up with the Bible? If the church is fallible, so is the New Testament, because the Catholic church came up with the Bible. So I just read to you all those denominations, right? It's not like, it, it would almost make more sense if you saw... Uh, Martin Luther went through and deleted some stuff out of the, out of scripture. He took books out of the Bible and he added some words here and there. Like he made some changes, which, you know, I don't think is good for your, for a brother's salvation. I don't recommend it, but it makes sense logically, right? Like if you're going to combat the church and say the church is fallible, the church is not the, the true church of Christ. I'm going to create the church of Christ. It's a pretty bold and prideful thing to proclaim. I think then you must be, uh, you must, you must have issue with the, with the Bible as well, because the Bible, like obviously the Old Testament books were written before Jesus, but all the New Testament books were written roughly by the end of the first century AD. So now I'm reading from Catholic.com, also known as Catholic Answers, answering the question, who put the Bible together and what year? The Bible as a whole was not, going back to their, this is quoting them, but the Bible as a whole was not officially compiled until the late fourth century, illustrating that it was the Catholic Church who determined the canon that is, the lists of books of the Bible under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the Bible is not a self-canonizing collection of books, as there is no table of contents included in any of the books. Jesus did not sit down before he went up to heaven, before he ascended into heaven, and say, these are the books I want you to include in the Bible. So I know there's going to be some other Gospels that are written. If you don't know that, there was many other Gospels that were written of Jesus' life that didn't make it, the Gospel of Thomas and others. And he said, you know, I know Thomas is going to write one, but don't include his. I want Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. And then uh, St. Paul's going to write a letter to this person, this, this group, this church, this church, this church. I want you to include those. Don't include these letters in scripture. Um, John's going to write this really crazy book called Revelation. I want you to include that. Like, he didn't do that, right? Like, these were people that did this. And so if you believe that people can form things, right? Like, if you believe in what it just says there, that the Catholic Church, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, determined the, the canon or the list of books. If you believe that they were true then, then why would they, how can they not, how can that not happen other, in other ways? 
How can that not happen in other ways? That's the same way, the same discernment process, right? These councils is the same way that they determine things like uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, right? This is the same process they go through in discerning like Marian apparitions. Like Mary has appeared throughout the centuries over and over again. It's literally why the entire continent of Mexico is Catholic or not continent, country of Mexico is Catholic, but the entire continent of South America too. It's, that's why. It's because Mary appeared to, to uh, St. Juan Diego, Our Lady of Guadalupe. You see this image everywhere. It converted an entire country to Catholicism because Mary has appeared in so many places. Hundreds of people witnessed the miracle of, son, of the son of Our Lady of Fatima. Like there, There's literally hundreds and thousands of people who have witnessed Marian apparitions and Eucharistic miracles over the, over the centuries. It does not make any sense to me. So... Uh, Continue to go on. So it says the New Testament canon was not determined until the late 300s. Books um, the church deemed sacred were early on proclaimed at mass and read and preached about otherwise. Early Christian writings outnumbered the 27 books that would become the canon of the New Testament. The shepherds of the church, by a process of spiritual discernment and investigation into liturgical traditions of the church spread throughout the world, had to draw clear lines of distinction between books that are truly inspired by God and originated in the apostolic period and those that were only claimed to have these qualities. Continuing on, this is our last little bit here. The process culminated in 382 as the Council of Rome, which was convened under the leadership of Pope Damasus, promulgated the 73-book spiritual canon. I say again, the 73-book spiritual canon. The 73-book spiritual canon, not 66, 73-book spiritual canon. The biblical canon was reaffirmed by the regional councils of Hippo, Carthage, Hippo in 393, Carthage in 397, and then definitely reaffirmed by the Ecumenical Council of Florence in 1442. If the, if the church is fallible or incapable of being infallible, then the New Testament is capable of being infallible, which also does not support sola scriptura. That don't add up. I don't get the math on that, homeboy. So talk to me now. Early church letters, post-resurrection, Paul's letters. Like, guys, it says about scripture and tradition. Now, I'm going to go to the other thing. That drives me freaking nuts about Sola Scriptura. I think I have this belief. Now, obviously, the, the Protestant Reformation was in 1517. So I think that he was still impacted by technology. But I think that most people today who believe in Sola Scriptura are really impacted by technology because I think it's really easy to convince somebody that uh, I think it's really easy to convince somebody that all you need is scripture if you have the Bible on your phone with you all the time. If you got the Bible with you all the time on your phone, why would you not believe that all you need is scripture? It makes sense because we're so equipped with it, right? What else do you need? You just need the word of God. And now understand, like Catholics don't downplay the word of God. I, I've, I've listened to and watched a lot of Protestant uh, uh, pastors, especially your Stephen Furrick, Michael Todd's preach. And they don't read scripture the way Catholics do. I'm telling you, obviously a lot of Catholics, I know Catholics are, are notorious for not reading scripture and not paying attention to mass. But we read the whole Bible every three years. It is read completely at mass. We read from the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, and the gospel in every single uh, Sunday Mass, and three of those four in every daily Mass, right? So pretty wild. 
But I think that people having the Bible app, I think it makes you be like, yeah, all you need is scripture. All you need is the Bible. And you have like stream churches online and podcasts, all this other stuff that you can kind of listen to and kind of subsidize if you are a supplement, uh, you know, not going to church. It's like, I'll just watch church. You know, I'm a little tired or whatever. I'll just watch it. It's like, dog, no, that ain't it. Tell me how, how you believe everybody was Catholic until 1517. And you believe that all you need was scripture. But my friends, the printing press wasn't even created until 1436. For 1400 years, every copy of, of the Bible, right? I guess and that's not true for 1100 years since it was created in, in the late 300s. So let's say 1000 to 1100 years, every copy of the letters, scripture, whatever, you know, was hand copied not only that but i also looked up the literacy rate in 1600 for males who were the only ones educated at the time was 30 percent. that's in england literacy rate in 1640s in england was around 30 percent. that's what 150 130 or no about 100 or 1640s, that's 200 years after the printing press was created. So printing press, 1436. In 1640s, one-third of every male in England could read. One out of three, 200 years after the printing press was created. So that's why I think that even Martin Luther might have been affected by the printing press being around for almost 100 years by the time he did his whole you know, Protestant Reformation. And, you know, started the Sola Scriptura stuff because he was educated. He knew the stuff. He had scripture. But like that's this is the stuff I don't understand. How do people go so long without scripture? Like you didn't have the things that you have now. There weren't people reading their daily reflections on their phone or their Joel Osteen videos and, and all this other stuff. Like we didn't have that back then. You know what people had? They had mass. They didn't have mega churches and concerts and all these things and flashy lights and millionaire, multimillionaire preachers. They had St. Francis rocking around, you know, balling out, doing his thing, trying to rebuild the church. They had St. Augustine going around preaching the truth. St. Nicholas going around slapping heretics, right? People couldn't read. They couldn't do these things. So, I, I mean, that's what I don't understand. Sola Scriptura, it might make sense if we all had access to Scripture 24-7 now but how would god lead us with that leave us you know here on earth with no guidance of what books are supposed to go in scripture none of that stuff he would have had to been a lot more specific in my opinion for that to be true if it was solo scriptura was jesus's plan he would have to been a lot more specific about what was supposed to go in scripture and how we were supposed to have access to it because it doesn't make a lot of sense but what he did do was institute the eucharist at the last supper and tell us to continue to do that and had St. Paul reiterate that in his letters and go around showing people how to do that and start to ordain people and created a first pope and gave us a lot of things that weren't written down in scripture. That's what Jesus did do. He did reference a lot of other sacraments, like the sacrament of marriage, like the sacrament of uh, holy orders, like the sacrament of confession. He did do those things, but he never said that all you need is, is the books that people are going to eventually write. He, he said that zero times, like zero, zero times. Boom. 
All right, so that's where we're going to cut it for today. Remember to tune in next Monday for uh, part two of Why Am I Catholic? You know, I always say this, but I'm like, man, the part twos are, I think, are always my best my best parts, and uh, they always get less listens. So I highly encourage you, if you enjoyed this one at all today, to check out part two next week as we finish and kind of wrap up the top five reasons why we're Catholic. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it um, with, with a friend or somebody who you think might find it valuable. And so uh, thank you so much for listening and God bless.